you take out your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in Numbers chapter 12 this morning. On the battlefield, there is an ever-present threat of what soldiers call friendly fire. Friendly fire. Where the casualties of battle come not from an opposing enemy, but unfortunately from among their own ranks. Uh, most of us here this morning are probably not a soldier, although there are some for sure. Uh, and we probably don't relate to this phrase or hear this phrase as a threat, sort of a military threat on the battlefield. But probably everyone in the room this morning has experienced some kind of friendly fire in our personal lives, either relationally or spiritually in some way, where maybe we've been hurt by those closest to us. Christian leaders, spouses, siblings, parents, people that we thought were our friends. Uh, friendly fire, I think, can be sort of the most painful casualty that a person can experience because those who are closest to us have the ability to hurt us the most. Uh, if, and I think that's because we love them and we respect them. And if we didn't, then we might think, well, I can just dismiss your criticism. But because we love them, because we respect them, because they know us, their wounds cut us uh, the deepest. Uh, last week in Numbers 11, we saw Moses basically surviving some complaints and criticism from the rabble amongst Israel, rabble sort of indicating that there were some people that had joined them in the Exodus that maybe were not true Israel, but had joined them and were uh, with them, and that's where sort of the initial complaints started, and then they instigated it in the rest of Israel, who happily joined their complaints, and the complaints had basically centered on the issue of food, right? We don't have what we want. We're tired of eating this manna. If only we had meat to eat. And we got the classic deadline from God. If you want meat, I'll give you meat. It'll be coming out of your nose. And they angered the Lord and they annoyed Moses in this initial complaint here. And uh, this sort of prayer, if you could call it that, from Moses or this lament, if this is what it's going to be like to lead your people, then kill me now. Just kill me now. And unfortunately, I think a lot of pastors have prayed this prayer at one time or another. <laughs> this is what the folks are going to be like. Kill me now. Rather die with one bullet to the head than buy a thousand paper cuts here. So Moses faces uh, criticism originally, originally from sort of among the people. But now a new source emerges in Numbers 12 here. It comes from inside, from among his own family. And that's our first point this morning. Moses faces another round of criticism. Read with me in chapter 12, verse 1. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Now, it may not be immediately obvious from the text here, if you know your Bible, if, if you have grew up in Sunday school and uh, had parents who taught you the word of God, you, you might know this, that these are all siblings, Moses and and Aaron and Miriam. In fact, I'll remind you of some stories that you probably know. It was Miriam who watched little baby brother Moses be set in the basket and, 
and put into the river to flee from uh, the threat of Pharaoh who was killing all of the newborn Israelite boys. So if you think about this, she's big sister, maybe 10, 15 years older, I, I don't know. And of course, Moses was sort of plucked out of the river by none other than Pharaoh's own daughter. And, and Miriam, who viewed this, was poised in that particular moment. She was crafty and she stepped forward and said, how about if I retrieve for you an Israelite woman who could nurse this baby? And of course, goes home and then gets Moses' own mother, Jochebed, such that, that uh, Moses could be nursed by his own mom and providentially be spared, raised in the palace, educated and prepared for his leadership role. Uh, but as we see, it was his big sister, Miriam, who was sort of instrumental even in this arrangement. And so when we cast all the way forward here, I think it's interesting because Miriam, she has become a leader in her own right. Right after they cross the Red Sea, in fact, Moses leads the people in worship and Miriam takes the women off and she leads them in worship as well. But if you think about it, Miriam is the big sister, but it's Moses who has the big role. Like it or not, little brother became the big man. And it would be easy for, I think, jealousy to sort of creep up between them. And now we look at Aaron. And to me, Aaron comes across in the scriptures as sort of the classic little brother. Do we have little brothers in the room? There we go. I'm talking to you right now. Uh, And when I think of Aaron, this is the guy who comes to mind for me. This is Eli Manning. And I don't know if you remember this particular moment, but there was a football game a couple years ago, Super Bowl 50, and Eli's big brother, Peyton, is leading a drive, and they get towards the end of the game, and they get into the end zone, and they have this go-ahead touchdown, and everybody in the box is elated. Yeah, they've gone in and scored. We're going to win the Super Bowl. But then there's Eli's face here. <laughs> he doesn't look pleased, and actually, this became quite a story, and he was on Uh, uh, interviews and uh, TV shows asking about this, and he alleges, what he says was, I was just wondering if they should go for two or not for the extra point conversion. But I love, look at the kid in front of him. That's how the family should have been feeling. But we get Eli here going, oh, big brother did it again. So for whatever reason, Eli is who comes to mind for me when I think of Aaron. Uh, sort of, uh, I mean, he's no, Aaron in the scriptures is no slouch. He's the high priest of the Lord. But somehow he, he is just the classic little brother, even in sort of his checkered leadership. Aaron was the one who made the golden calf, right? Big brother goes off to, you know, talk with God. I got this. Let's make a little calf and let's worship it. After all, it was this little thing that we just made that took us across the Red Sea and rescued us. Kind of absurd. And uh, even at one point later on in uh, Aaron's life and ministry, his job is just to hold up Moses' arms. That's a little brother job. So again, I think Aaron actually, with all of these sort of comical stories, he becomes an honorable figure, but try as he may, he's still a little brother. He's still overshadowed by Moses. And so we might initially be tempted to see this story and and sort of the tension between these folks as just a case of sibling rivalry here. Kind of like this. Look carefully at the baby. 
she's gotten a makeover I got at the hand of her sibling here. Uh, but what we need to understand here is this, that the criticism that's being levied here is actually a lot more than just sibling rivalry. In fact, Miriam and Aaron have a specific complaint, right? Their complaint begins with Moses' wife, who is not actually named here, only described as a Cushite. And this is a little bit of a puzzling passage for us because Moses' wife has been previously named. It's Zipporah. And we saw this back in Exodus, even as they first started off in, uh, in leaving the land. Uh, and and uh, Zipporah is known as a Midianite in the scriptures. And so when we see here Moses' wife described as a Cushite, that sort of presents one of two possibilities. Either, and there is, some, there is a passage in Habakkuk, uh, 3, verse 7, that indicates that Cushites and Midians, Midianites maybe have some sort of overlapping uh, common ground here. So that's one possibility. Or the other possibility is that this may be Moses' second wife. It may be that Zipporah has died. And it, I think that actually seems more likely here because her name is not given and because it's interjected in such a way for he had married a Cushite as though it has uh, just happened here. Uh, so I'm not really sure if it's Zipporah or if this is a new wife, can't be sure, but, but nevertheless the issue for them, or at least what they uh, kind of lob out here is the fact that, oh, she's a Cushite. So what is that? What does that mean? Here is, I want to show you uh, sort of regionally, the land of Cush is down there in that yellow circle where uh, it shows uh, sort of the region of Ham. Of course, these are the sons of Noah and sort of the areas where they settled, but uh, you see Egypt there kind of in the center where the circles uh, come together, but it's south of that region uh, where we find uh, sort of the land of Cush, where she would be from. It would be modern-day Ethiopia. Uh, And this region of Cush was really sort of the furthest known world in sort of the Hebrew mind here. And so you might say, on one hand, they're thinking, well, she's a country bumpkin. She's from way out over there. Uh, That might be one thing that they're throwing out there. But overall, I would say this, it's not, and as being an Ethiopian, she would have darker skin, but I think overall what we find here is that it's not the pigment of her skin, it's not that she's a foreigner, the issue that they might bring up is that she's not Israel. And I think that's probably what Miriam and Aaron hold against her and against Moses for marrying her. In fact, we see really throughout the Old Testament, we see God uh, giving prohibitions about Israel intermarrying with uh, foreign neighbors. And the issue here is not one of ethnicity when God gives these prohibitions, but intermarriage posed the threat of idolatry. And that became the issue why God did not want his people to worship uh, sort of the neighbor gals, because the neighbor gals worshiped other gods. The issue was uh, concern for idolatry. And that seems to be the charge that they lay against Moses here, but actually we'll find out that even this complaint about his wife being a Cushite isn't the real issue at all. That's a smokescreen as well. And so what we have here is more than sibling rivalry, more than a family feud, I think what we actually find is that this criticism is actually a direct challenge to Moses' spiritual leadership. And this, I think, is more, ser- uh, more clearly seen in their complaint in verse 2, where they ask the question, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And then we get the ominous words, and the Lord heard this. 
And if this story were on radio, we would hear the classic dun-dun-dun, you know, the dramatic music. The passage continues with a very interesting comment here. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. I have to pause here. Remind me, who is the author of the Pentateuch? Who is the author of this book? Moses. How does one say that about themselves? I'm the most humble man I know on the face of the earth. It seems self-contradictory and that it evaporates in the saying of it, right? Uh, And I think what we find here, I want you to notice that this comment is in parentheses. Do you see that? And I think what we are meant to see here is that most likely this is sort of an editorial comment that is uh, by someone who helped Moses in the collecting of all his material and putting it together. I think it was probably uh, something that was said there of Moses, not Moses speaking of himself. Uh, and, I think, and I think it's placed there just to help us see what the real issue is. In other words, Miriam and Aaron seem to be alleging that Moses is strutting his stuff, right? Strutting his role, taking a Cushite wife, doing what he wants, acting like the sole spokesman for God. Our brother, big brother, has gotten awful big for his britches. I think that's what we're meant to see here, and yet this comment helps us with the contrast when in reality, this wasn't the case. But he was known throughout the world for his great humility. In other words, we are meant to see here that what was alleged does not square with the way that things really are. The issue is not how Moses has exercised his leadership. The issue is how these two see themselves in the org chart. That's the problem. And so Moses has not been heavy-handed. Rather, it's the people who have been hard-hearted. First of all, the rabble, then most of Israel, Now the hard-heartedness is showing among top-tier leaders, even the relatives of Moses. And I want you to consider for a moment the context of this passage. This comes right on the heels of a really interesting event where Moses goes to the Lord and asks for help. And God empowers 70 elders with the Spirit of God to help him in his leadership. That's the immediate context where this is flowing out of here. So let me ask you this. Is Moses grasping for power? Is he localizing or consolidating power in himself? In reality, both Moses and God are distributing power and leadership uh, throughout Israel here. Even enabling other leaders uh, to be spokesmen and helpers to Moses. And so if anyone here is actually grasping for power or acting with arrogance, it's Miriam and Aaron, isn't it? This is a classic case of the pot calling the kettle black. Uh, Now, very likely, you know, Miriam and Aaron are just sort of feeling overlooked, uh, unappreciated, overshadowed, quite frankly, resistant to the spiritual leadership of another. And it seems to me that it's from this condition of heart that they attack their brother and attack Moses. Now, I want to pause right here and offer a bit of an interjection. I think this is really important. There are many contemporary leaders today who will come back to this passage and claim it and take it way too far. Uh, There are contemporary leaders who would use this to defend what I would call 
spiritual abuse and authoritarian leadership. And they'll say something like, don't lay a hand against the Lord's anointed, right? Uh, In fact, uh, the old pastor, if you remember, Jim Baker, years ago, he was one who just before engaging in an illicit sexual act with a woman who was uh, not his wife, stated something to this effect. And I'm sorry this is a little bit crass and a little bit glib, but this is what he said. If you help the shepherd, you help the sheep. Right before engaging in this illicit act. And so there are those who are leaders uh, within the church, charlatans, people who are self-serving, simply looking to uh, grasp for themselves what they can, and they would claim a passage such as this to justify their immoral actions. Don't lay a hand against the Lord's anointed. This ideology, I think, is actually even you know, really rampant, especially within some charismatic churches. I'm not trying to demonize charismatic churches, but this is a place where this kind of ideology is, is really prevalent. In fact, there's even a title for it. It's called uh, the Moses Model in some churches, where basically they claim that the spiritual leader is sort of unimpeachable, the lone spokesman for God. And these church cultures are absolutely rife with abuse. And we see this kind of thing unfolding before us right now in the Catholic Church almost on a weekly basis as a new revelation comes out of some kind of abuse. So this caveat I think is important. I want you to understand this before I go on with what I'm teaching here. Some people take this passage and will use it in abusive ways. And we're certainly not trying to do that. Nevertheless, we want to teach the principles that are here. There is a caution about attacking spiritual leaders unjustly, but we need to be careful not to take it too far because spiritual leaders need to be held accountable. Okay? And so the next point here I think uh, that I want to I get to is this, that spiritual leadership is given and not taken. Now, this doesn't come immediately from the text. I think this is what we find in the teaching of Scriptures overall. But spiritual leadership is given, not taken. That is, it is affirmed in someone, not assumed. It's recognized in someone, but it's not required, not somebody requiring that you be seen that way. Uh, It's something that is earned. It's not something that's demanded. And so when I speak of the givenness of spiritual leadership, I want to start, first of all, uh, with God as the source. Spiritual leadership is given by God, first and foremost. Uh, If you recall, it was the Lord that drew Moses into his role. He took the initiative, and in fact, Moses was quite reluctant at first, do you remember? I would say this, it has actually been my experience that those who are the most eager to be spiritual leaders that are one, the ones to watch out for the most. Uh, ambition is not the tenor of a spiritual leader. Uh, now, even that, I have to nuance a little bit, because in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy 3, where it talks about the qualifications of an elder, it states right there that he who desires to be an elder desires a noble thing. So desire in its, of itself is not bad, but ambition, ambition to be in that role, I think is something to serve as a caution because it is character and not ambition that makes one qualified to lead. So first of all, we see that spiritual leadership is Uh, given by God. And then secondly, I think it's important to recognize that spiritual leadership is actually given by man. Uh, In other words, a necessary sort of uh, recipe, you might call it, to 
see one called to a role of spiritual leadership has, I think, three ingredients or three parts to it. Number one, there is a prompting or initiative of God in the life of an individual. Secondly, there is an inward desire, but I think you have to watch that it doesn't go over to ambition. And then thirdly, it has to be the affirmation of mankind around them to see that, yes, God has equipped this person to serve. And I think we see this in Acts chapter 6, a passage which I think introduces prototype deacons, sort of as that role was maybe developing initially. Uh, And and we see the passage in in, uh, verse 3, chapter 6, verse 3. It says, Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit. We'll turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. In other words, the apostles are basically saying, hey, we have this charge before God to do these things. We need some more leaders. We want you to recognize and affirm. Recognize those among you. Choose from among you those who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit. And so there was a recognition of the people themselves upon those that were being called forward uh, for leadership. In other words, one does not grasp leadership. One is given leadership. A calling to lead is initiated by God, and I think it's affirmed by man. And overall, what I would want you to hear in this section is this, that one's authority is derived. It's not self-appointed. Thirdly, as we move on here, the key credential for spiritual leadership, really, in all of the scriptures from beginning to end, is character. Is character. Uh, We see this again in Acts 6 here as we look at prototype deacons. We see it when we look at elders and the qualifications for an elder, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5. These lists of the qualifications are all about character. In fact, there is only one skill in these three lists when it speaks of uh, recognizing spiritual leaders. Do you know what it is? Able to teach. It's the only skill. Everything else in all of those lists about spiritual leadership in the New Testament are about character, about character. Now, there's a lot of character traits we could look at, but I want to go back to our primary text here uh, in Numbers 12, and I want to talk just a little bit about the two that we see that are here, that are explicitly mentioned of Moses. Humility is the first one mentioned, right? The most humble man on the face of the earth. Glad he didn't have to say it about himself and somebody else did. But the second one that we see is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Look at verse 4 with me. At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, this, so this is just like a dad moment again, right? Talking to the kids. Come over here, you knuckleheads. Come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them went out, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud, and he stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. And when the two of them stepped forward, he said, listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all of my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them. And he left them. Let's first of all acknowledge what God acknowledges here. uh, Sort of these character traits. First of all, spiritual leaders are marked by humility. This is what the text affirms for us. Even though they're levying these charges against him, they don't stick. Because everybody knows that Moses is humble. More humble than any man on the face of the earth. 
And that reminds me of so much of what the scripture says, uh, this phrase that appears again and again. But God gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. A friend of mine back in Boston named Dick Kies, he's former director of the Labrie Study uh, 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 Retreat Center, has said this, that nobody who walks with God is prideful. I find that sentence to be a whole sermon in and of itself. <laughs> a much shorter sermon, but a sermon nonetheless. No one, no one who walks with God is prideful. He went on to talk to us about this one evening, about the idea that humility is a gateway virtue. In other words, you don't get the other virtues if you're not humble. If one is not humble, you don't have the posture to learn or the ability to reflect or to look upon one's own life with a certain level of criticism to see where you are in your spiritual development and where God would have you be. Without humility, you think you've arrived. And so you put a roadblock out for all of the other things that would lead you to virtues that would honor the Lord and imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. Humility is a great a gateway virtue. True leaders have a humble posture. Out of love for God and love for man, they're willing to serve. And I think secondly here, God indicates this qualification of Moses in his leadership role, and that is spiritual leaders are marked by faithfulness. I love this phrase, he is faithful in all of my house. That phrase is just pregnant with meaning. We get the impression that there is no corner of Moses' leadership and service to be ashamed of. There's no duplicity in him. God is not an accessory to some parts of his life and locked out of others. But God is a permeating reality in every sphere of Moses' life. Now, we know, too, this doesn't mean that Moses is perfect, right? Does Moses have a perfect track record? Moses is a murderer. Right before his public leadership, he kills the guy. And Moses will be rejected from even going into the promised land because of an act of disobedience. So he is not a perfect man. But his posture is one of faithfulness in all of his responsibilities, in all of God's house, in all of his, the family of God, in all of Israel here, he was faithful. This takes us to our final point here this morning, what I think we are meant to get from this passage primarily, that unwarranted criticism against spiritual leaders places us ourselves at risk. Verse 9. The anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. When the cloud lifted from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. It became as white as snow. Aaron toward, turned toward her and saw that she had a defiling skin disease and said to Moses, Please, my Lord, I ask you not to hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming out of its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. So Moses cried out to the Lord, Please, God, help her. There is the prayer of a humble man. Four words. Please, God, help her. The Lord replied to Moses, If her father had spit in her face, she would not have 
uh, would she not have been in disgrace for seven days? Confine her outside the camp for seven days, and after that, she can be brought back. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move, did not move on until she was brought back. After that, the people left Hezroth, Hezeroth and encamped in the desert of Paran. So the first thing I want to acknowledge here is this. By harming God-given leaders, we ultimately harm ourselves. And this is a lesson that we are meant to learn here from this particular passage. I think I find it really fascinating, too, that when leprosy uh, sort of strikes her, uh, even though Aaron has been right there lobbying this complaint against Moses, he knows exactly who to go to for help, right? He knows. He knows who God was using in his heart of hearts. Uh, and I would tell you this, as a spiritual leader uh, in this church, uh, I am all too aware that we ourselves are just broken and flawed instruments, very imperfect, prone to mistakes, and by God's grace, instruments that he uses. Uh, in fact, the passage that really... Um, was on my heart and mind this week as I was studying this was what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.26 where he says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, and it goes on from there. But overall, you get the impression that if God has called you to a role of spiritual leadership, it's not because you had your act together. <laughs> it's because you are a relatively ordinary lump of clay whom God could get the most glory from because his power would be on display and not your own. I, I often find people saying something to the effect of, oh, I really wish so-and-so would come to know the Lord. They've got so many skills and so many abilities and God could really use them as though God needed our skills and abilities. In fact, that seems to be an absolute converse to the way God selects his leaders as Paul says here. And to me, it is almost as though God says, let me just scan the world here from some real pieces of work. Those are gonna be my leaders. I'm I'm gonna use them I'm going to use someone like Moses, a murderer, because I want people to see what I can do, not what they're able to do. I think, uh, I think God looks at somebody like Eric and Adam and Mark and says, let me show you my glory through these really ordinary fellows. Or let me really blow you away. Let's talk about the elders. Sorry, guys. Let's talk about Jeff Green and Keith Payne. Let's talk about Nick Nugent and Jay Williams, Wyatt Person, and John Lingus for Pete's sake. Let's talk about these guys. Heavyweights, very ordinary lumps of clay that God uses because he's interested in showing his glory, not what we have. We're also taught here that when we harm God's leaders, we invite God's discipline. And as you can see here, this discipline that is doled out in Miriam's life is compared to an act of discipline of a, for a father for a child he loves. Now we read the passage and think, you know, a father really shouldn't be spitting in the face of his child. 
that's gross and really unkind. Um, but nevertheless, sort of he, God is basically arguing from a very cultural experience here where you were to basically shame and discipline one in your family for an act uh, that brought embarrassment on the family. And this spit would you know, go to their face and they would be set outside for a while because now they had been defiled, unclean, and it would take days before they would come back. The point that God is making here is if a father exercises discipline even on his own child so that it would surface in them a godly grief and repentance for their action. And if you as human fathers would carry this out to produce that grief, letting the discipline have its impact, then I'm going to let this play out in Miriam's life. I'm going to let her learn from the consequences of her decision here. One of the things that I think we learn here, and this is a little hard to say, but there are infirmities that God brings into our life as a means of discipline and correction. Now, don't be a stupid Christian and go around and seeing people who are sick and making the absolute statement, therefore, you must have sinned. Don't do that. Please do not embarrass our Lord by doing that. There are times when I think infirmities come into our own life And we are meant to look at our own life before God and say, Lord, have I displeased you? Is this something, a corrective tool, an act of discipline that you might be bringing into my life to bring about and to facilitate a godly grief and repentance? Which brings us to our last point here. That restoration can be found through repentance. This is the great theme through all of the scriptures. Restoration can be found through repentance. God forgives. God, who is holy and most high, forgives the repentant. We hear that word, and it's often spoken in such shrill tones in the culture around us that we kind of cringe when we hear repent. Repentance is a gift that God says, I offer you an invitation to be right with me. And this is the way. It is through repentance Think of the phrase that is picked up actually from Numbers and given in the book of Hebrews in chapter 3. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We think about through the whole of scriptures how God responds to people who had sinned in their own life. David was an adulterer sinning against Bathsheba and her husband Uriah, but considered a man after God's own heart because he was quick to repentance. Moses the murderer, but considered a friend of God because he was humble and he acknowledged the Lord and he was quick to repentance. Aaron too, even though he makes an idol out of his position in leadership, was repentant and he too found grace and mercy. And this is the nature and the posture of our God towards sinners. He is quick to forgive those who are truly repentant and our God is the same yesterday, today and forever. Now, I think in closing here, I think it would be easy for us to look at this passage and go, whew, well, I'm glad I'm not a spiritual leader. Um, but I will tell you this, you are. Very, there will be very few, if anyone in the room, who isn't in a role of spiritual leadership. We might think this applies to pastors, elders, deacons, or the such. But this passage applies to moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas. And it's relevant for Sunday school teachers and Awana leaders and worship team leaders, small group leaders, 
friends, mentors. You have a spiritual leadership role in someone's life. And for those of you who are young and you wonder if maybe God has a leadership role for you in the future, then I would encourage you and challenge you with this. It is about your character. It is not about your skills. God is not looking for greatness in a leader. He is looking for one who will be a transparent instrument through whom God's glory can shine. I'll close with the passage that we find in Isaiah 42. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. Let's pray. Father, it's a humbling thing uh, to read this passage and to know that one is in the role of spiritual leadership. Uh, it is a humbling thing to know that you have not chosen us for leadership roles and capacity because of what we bring to the table, uh, but probably actually the lack of what we might have to bring. Lord, we recognize that you are at work in your church and among your people, and you use the broken and flawed, people like Moses, murderer, people like David, an adulterer, people like Aaron, an idolater, and people like Miriam, critic. These are people that you use to lead your people. I pray, God, that whatever role we find ourselves in, whether it's as an officer in the church, or as a mom and a dad, or a mentor, or a volunteer of some kind. May we lead with the kind of character that we see in Moses, humility and faithfulness, that our God would be glorified in what we do and not ourselves. Lord, where our attitude towards leaders have become critical, uh, where we attack them or where we fail to support them or give them proper honor, Convict our hearts if that's what's necessary. Pray that you would lead each one, Lord, to rightful repentance. Not that we would be lowly of heart, but that we might find forgiveness and find the joy of walking with you and find pleasure in your presence. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior, the most humble leader ever. Amen.